Hey, everybody, this is Martine. Just a quick warning, there is some explicit language in today's show. Okay, enjoy. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Rutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 1st. Today, how the arts are surviving even in a pandemic. A blues musician stuck at home. And a new rom-com that's challenging stereotypes. With the coronavirus, the challenge that museums are facing right now is, uh, I mean, it's obvious, they aren't open. Jeff Edgers is a national arts reporter for The Post. You know, you can't see anything on the wall. You can't watch a performance. All of their programming is on hold and shut down. People are having to rethink how they do things. And nowhere are we seeing that more than in the world of arts and culture. We have been seeing a flood of material online. Neil Young performing as the snow falls at his home. What's so funny about Elvis Costello in what looks like his bedroom. Jonathan Biss at the piano. All this stuff, it's, it, you almost don't have time to follow it. But one particular project that caught my eye is this amazing audio project at the Louis Armstrong House Museum, which is basically a complete diary of Louis Armstrong's life in his own words. We have about 750 of these tapes. And how many hours altogether? Oh, I've never done a full count. I would say probably, I would average maybe 2,000 hours. How much of that have you heard personally? Every every second. <laughs> Ricky Riccardi is the director of research at the collection for the Louis Armstrong House. In December 1950, Armstrong got his first reel-to-reel tape recorder. Hey, Steph Crouch, since we are testing, how about putting on... Uh... And we actually have the very first tape he made. Just about mm-hmm. like that. Then, then uh, to play it back, all you got to do is... Within the first few minutes, he's in his dressing room, passing around the microphone. People are commenting on the tape recorder. He picks up the trumpet. Within the first literal minutes of turning on this new machine, he kind of realizes that this could be a way for him to kind of document his life. And he just started recording everything. Well, go to bed. I'll be there. Right behind you. Now, what the shit? You got that fucking thing on? Honey, what are you going? Turn your red tape recorder on. Don't be flopping me off. I got thousands of tapes. I wouldn't give a shit about your thousands of tapes. You can come with them tomorrow. Turn your tape off. In fact, erase out some of that shit. Oh, you you're getting nervous, man. <laughs> I ain't getting nervous, but you ain't, you know, you you ain't got no better That's sense than... Posterities. Posterity in my ass. You got no better sense than play that... The tape recorder was a portable tape recorder. So there's tons of tapes we have made at home, but there's also ones made on the road. would travel with these things you know he would have a trunk 
with two record players and a reel-to-reel tape recorder. And then he would, you know, be on the road making tapes in hotel rooms, making tapes backstage. These tapes really have everything. You have him rehearsing. You have him at dinner parties at his house. Who that asked me was Brussels sprouts raised in Brussels. You have him fighting with his wife. Oh, you know better. You're just full of whiskey, right? I ain't that full of whiskey. No fucking talk about. I ain't that full of whiskey. <laughs> you running your mouth. You have him setting the record straight on what kind of racism he faced. But that dark skin situation is a whole lot of bullshit. You remember that white boy? He's a sailor or something. Uh, or one of these battleships in Pearl Harbor. He expressed himself. He come up and he shook my hand after the whole show was over, didn't he? And he said, you know, I don't like Negroes. Right to my fucking face, that motherfucker told me. And so I said, well, I admire your goddamn sincerity. He said, I don't like Negroes, but if you want something, I'm crazy about it, didn't he? Didn't he? Yes, he said, I got every fucking record. He grew up at a time, he saw lynchings, he dealt with racism, he dealt with everything, even when he, his early days as a celebrity in the late 20s, early 30s. I mean, he went through hell and experienced it all and still came out with this incredible positive spirit. Louis Armstrong was a crowd pleaser. He was on camera. He was smiling. He became, you know, an amazing showman. He was in movies. He played concerts. He was singing to make people happy. And sometimes he got criticized for that. I think the only criticism that's ever been leveled against you is that some people say you do too much clowning on the stage, that you could stand there all by yourself just doing nothing and people would love it just as much. I know, but I mean, people enjoy the clowning, you know. See, the majority rules in my plan, you know, that's what I go by. What we learn is that he's nothing like that. What you hear on these tapes is the true, unvarnished opinions and experiences of Louis Armstrong. What is clowning? It's name to make the people get a little laugh, to put humor in your program, and the note still comes out. That's not clowning. Clowning when you can't play nothing. And always remember that. So I don't think that's such a cute phrase. You don't play 45 years and hit notes and do things nobody else can do. And that's slipping. So it's that kind of side of him, too. Don't let the smile fool you. Don't think that he wasn't angry. And he wants to make sure that side of him is preserved on tape as well. Well, folks, that was my life. And I enjoyed all of it. Yes, I did. I don't feel ashamed at all. My life has always been an open book. So I have nothing to hide. Basically, Ricky has gone through these tapes for 10 years and he's been uh, transferring them. He's been archiving them. He's been organizing them, but they haven't really been used to their ultimate purpose for the public. And that's what's happening here. Now, no one's coming to the Armstrong house now. They won't be coming for quite some time. We're here. You know, it's a very small staff. We're all working from home. And so we've been able to kind of put together these virtual exhibits based around the theme of one of Lewis's uh, best known songs called That's My Home, figuring that we are all at home. So as far as doing this specific thing, would this not be happening if everything hadn't been shut down? This would not be happening. I could say that a thousand percent. You know, there's only two of us at the archives and our plates are full. So we would have these 
pipe dream thoughts about, oh, it would be fun to have a virtual exhibit. And now we're doing it. This would not exist without this break. This is a perfect example of what we're seeing now, how much rich material is suddenly available out there. So this is actually an amazing time to follow all this stuff. And you wonder how it's going to change and reshape these institutions when the doors open. Jeff Edgers is a national arts reporter for The Post. This program was recorded at Boston University on October 1st, 1953. I got a typewriter there. I'm the last one to go to bed. I got a typewriter there. You see, I typed those diet charts. That's the way I typed it, and that's the way to print. Someday you'll be sorry. Someday. I was the one who taught you all you know. But I did it. But I did it. hearing from a lot of people throughout this pandemic who are going through it in lots of different ways. And one of those people is Marquise Knox. He's a blues musician from St. Louis. And this month, he was supposed to be on tour with artists like ZZ Top and Cheap Trick. But now he's stuck at home, performing on Facebook Live. Marquise made an audio diary for another Post podcast, All Told. And we wanted to share some of it with you here. Now I'm coming, opening up the door, stepping outside, getting some fresh air, looking at the the lilies and the magnolia tree, sitting in the yard with these purple pinkish flower petals, feeling good quiet out this morning. Well, it's quiet most morning. I did um, recent reports of where my mother lived at, in Berkeley, Missouri, in this little town inside of St. Louis. I got 150 plus cases just there. And they just begin to set up drive-through testing. And it's just an explosion rate, you know, from where I come from, where I grew up at, in the surrounding places. Um, I wish life was as peaceful as the wind that's blowing, but right now it's not.
or filed for my unemployment maybe two weeks ago now. Was denied. Got a little letter in the mail. Denied. <laughs> Got an email this morning. Denied. Waiting on the state of Missouri to enact the system to help out self-employed and independent contractors. But we're still a little behind the ball. Um, some of my musician friends, I can see they're getting a little frustrated too. I guess we all get a dose of how antiquated some of these systems are, especially in the state of Missouri. You know, I was even sitting here today, I said, well, I'm going to have to count all my money up just to see how many weeks or months can I continue to go down this path like this. No income, still have bills that's due, child support, still want to get paid, mortgages due. So just living the life right now. I don't know what that life is, but I'm living been fortunate I guess you can say in my career just the people I met the things that I've been able to do in 29 years uh, without having a major record label behind me or major talent buyer behind me just fighting through all of this on my own taking the ups and the down so before the, pretty much the government shut down um, I was working on my next album getting ready to go on tour with ZZ Top, Canadian tour with ZZ Top and Cheap Trick. This year in Canada, from April 30th to May 24th. So that was something that I was looking forward to. Uh, that was going to be a major source of my income for this year. Like I said, being an independent artist and relying just solely on word of mouth and relationships that I build up with people uh, that was going to be a pretty major gig for myself this year. So, waiting to see how everything pan out with that. This is Marquise performing on Facebook Live. I got the key to the highway. April 16th, 
six o'clock in the morning. I've been up an hour and a half or so. It's only so long you can lay in the bed before you get up. Couldn't go back to sleep. So here I am. I was sitting here thinking before I come on. I said I was going to share how often I sit in silence. Just contemplating, thinking, um, going over things in my mind. And I learned this really from going on tour. Um, you tour in America, you got your band, so everybody's pretty much on one schedule. But when you're touring in Europe, you know, you can fly to Europe, you land, you got to get used to the time change. Uh, you know, most of the time you land, coming from America, you fly overnight, get there sometime the next morning, and you drive another hour or so to the hotel room. And a lot of times the guys would uh, go to sleep or just go to the off to themselves. And so I found myself being up a lot. And you listen to so much music and still that's not enough. You can, you know, watch so much TV and that's not enough. So I learned how to cope with the silence by really enjoying it, taking it in and understanding that, you know, the solitude in it sometimes can be magnificent. You'd be surprised what's on your mind when you take time to listen at yourself and your thoughts. It's Sunday, April 19th. Coming on to talk a little bit about the disparities in the COVID-19 cases amongst the, the African-American community. I mean, and just in the state of Missouri, 40% of the medical providers didn't report racial data. That was in the beginning. Now it's mandated by law to do it. Just in the city of St. Louis alone, 19 of the 24 deaths were African-American people. We know that, you know, underlining health reasons and conditions and systems have led to the massive amount of deaths that we find in our community, the explosive number of cases. And that was there before Corona or COVID-19 came. And it'll be there when it leaves. You know, how do we address these things that that's truly killing us. For me, it's just hard to separate my my daily black life from the blues, and then and not see the parallels between uh, our people coming out of slavery, headed into a system of Jim Crow sharecropping coming out of sharecropping this system lasted a hundred years plus 
and then you go right out of from from the sharecropping, and and then we start getting some of our grandfathers wind up in the industrial age. Okay, they get a good job at a factory, and then they have a family and kids, and then they get caught up in the crack epidemic. Then we get caught up in the crime bill of '94. This whole era the militarization of police departments, and then we go out and try to live a life, get a life started, but oh yeah, stock market crash, housing market crash. You know, this this is a war and peace, you know. And to me, that's all the blues. And that's just me describing somewhat of a panoramic view of blackness. Of why black life is the way it is. And to me, that's the blues. To somebody else, it could be hip hop. To another person, it could be rap. To someone else, it could be poetry. But to me, it's the blues. And for me, it's the blues. I, I, I wish people could feel that when they get to hollering about, oh, this is the blues and that is the blues and uh, no black, no white, just the blues. You know, that's somebody that's never been black. And if it's a black person saying that, that's a black person that's willing to deny his very existence for a mere uh, uh, thought that he may be living an American dream. But for me, it's all the blues. Marquise Knox is a blues musician in St. Louis. The story was produced by Bishop Sand and edited by Lillian Cunningham and Ariel Plotnick. To hear more stories from the pandemic, listen to All Told. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts or at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. Y'all to remember Hear these soft sounds I'm a good man Poor man Blues man Do you understand My children
And now, one more thing from Post Report producer Rena Flores. An interview with a director whose new film is taking on added meaning in this pandemic. A few months ago, Netflix surprised me by telling me they were going to give us a theatrical release because they're like, the movie turned out well. And I was like so thrilled about that. Obviously, we're not doing that anymore. Alice Wu is the writer and director of The Half of It. It's a bummer because I would love this movie to be seen in a theater. But like, there's nothing like a pandemic to give you perspective. (laughs) So I was like, well, whatever happens, happens. And while Alice was hunkered down in San Francisco... I've been pretty strictly sheltered in place for six or seven weeks now. I talked with her about the release of her new movie. It's out on Netflix today. Give it up next for Ellie Chu. The good thing about being different in a town like this is that no one expects you to be like them. I'm 17. I live in Squamish with my dad. I run a business writing essays for people. I guess I just never thought I'd need anyone else. The half of it is getting plugged as this kind of queer teen romantic comedy. Hey, hold up. $10 for three pages. No, I'm not trying to cheat. What's this? A letter. Maybe you can make me sound smart. Dear Astor Florence, I'm in love with you. And when you listen to the trailer, these hallways were murder. I'm a lead you. Yeah, I know. That sounds about right. You want a letter about love? I'll write you a letter about love. I think it starts off in the sort of grand romantic tradition of looking for your other half. But while I was watching, I was also really struck by how much of it was about the other connections people make. You know, people who can start off seemingly so far apart from each other. These uh, three people, but in particular this this main character, who's a Chinese-American immigrant high school senior girl, ends up sort of meeting the least likely person in the world and ends up being enlisted by him to help woo the object of his affection, this popular girl, who it turns out secretly is also the object of her affection. Most of the movie really focuses on that platonic love that develops between Ellie Chu and her straight white guy best friend, Paul. Conversation is like ping pong. I hit one, and then you... What the... Oops. Where were you born? In Squamish. What do you like about Squamish? I've never been anywhere else. Me neither. It's a story that's a little inspired by Alice's own life. I came out to myself as a senior in college, um, and my best friend at the time was a straight white guy who was pretty much the last person I would have thought, like, and this will be my best friend, because it seemed like we had nothing in common. And I think there's a way that I like to take these commercial hooks and populate it with characters you don't usually see. I didn't realize, though, that with the pandemic, that there would be another huge wave of anti-Asian sort of xenophobia and anti-Asian hatred coming out. You know, I think she was still figuring out how to process through that. And I, 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 I don't, I'm, I'm still, you know, it's, it's hard for me to... It's hard for me to read about every day and not have a lot of feelings. But I could get like a 50-year-old straight white conservative guy to start to identify with a 17-year-old closeted Chinese immigrant nerd girl. The thing she hoped people took away, especially now, 
It's the importance of these seemingly disparate connections. Like, I've won. Connections that both respect and span cultures, sexual preferences. So I guess I just want people to watch the movie to... And love. Fall in love with the characters and really feel their journey. And at the end, maybe it makes them feel a little more connected. Rena Flores is a producer for Post Reports. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow, we've got a special weekend episode of the podcast. It's about the magic of bread making, and it is a very lovely story. Look out for it in your feed on Saturday afternoon. Until then, our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svarnovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The post-director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs> 